Because we're likely to see a spike in COVID cases in the next two to three weeks following Thanksgiving, Governor Pritzker says regions will remain under their current limits for now, even if the numbers call for easing up. And Todd Connor and Emily Drake of Chicago Comes Back join the podcast to talk about the role of gratitude, yes, even right now, in leadership and in business. You know, the antidote to that is, is claiming a locus of control. And how do we how do we claim that locus? It's it's taking action. We're always just a big fan of like the micro movements and service to each other in the workplace feels vulnerable. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist, and somehow it's already Tuesday, December 1st. When it comes to a professional like your doctor or lawyer, you want someone who knows you well. Wintrust believes you should have the same relationship with your banker, someone you can call directly and know they'll understand your concerns. Thousands of local business owners called their Wintrust banker when they needed Paycheck Protection Program loans. They called, Wintrust answered, and helped more than 11,000 local businesses secure funding. Learn more at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. Hi there, and welcome to Crane's Daily Gist Live. I'm Amy Guth. This is sponsored by Wintrust. And we are joined, as we are every couple of weeks, by... Todd Connor and Emily Drake, they write the Chicago Comes Back column, which is all about leadership insights, despite all the things that are happening, all the things going on right now. Welcome back to the show. Good to see you both. Good to Thank see you, Amy. Ew. This was kind of timed around Thanksgiving, but I think it's a message that is good all the time, but especially this time of year. Thankful or resentful, you control the narrative. You, of course, being someone in a leadership position. Talk to me about this column. I prefer to sort of think, I mean, we posed it in the headline as an or, but I think as the days, you know, sort of arrive and we wake up a certain way and we get into the day and inevitably I was talking to uh, a leader yesterday, a senior VP of research who was literally having to put someone on a performance improvement plan in just mere minutes but had like woken up with like meditation and some sense of gratitude, like moved quickly into resentment. And then by the time we finished talking, like there was some more gratitude. So we frame it as you have the choice. It's either or. Um, I think probably what's more realistic is like just being aware of when we're in that place of feeling like, God, this year, am I right? Like the hits keep coming. And that is true. Um, But if we stay in sort of that place, we get stuck. And so we're we're offering in the column last week, you know, this option to also feel the gratitude, express the gratitude, um, begin meetings with gratitude. One of the things that we had the privilege of doing last week was be a part of some traditions with some of our clients, uh, calling out what we're grateful for in each other. And it can feel kind of contrived, right? It's like, is this working? Is this thing on? You know, what good is gratitude? Um, but we we know the science behind it, and I could drop all sorts of data on it. But to have the chance to really like have a choice in how you look at Thanksgiving 2020 and how you look, frankly, at today. I think that's what we want to offer leaders. It's that both things can be true sort of narrative that I think is really it's easier said than done for sure. There's a lot to it. And, and uh, I think a, like an inherent tension in embodying that. Todd, what would you add? Well, I, I mean, it is, uh, you know, Thanksgiving is a season of giving thanks. And, and that is a hard thing to do when you are you know, stuck at home, maybe not with family, not, maybe not with friends, when you're you know, facing economic hardship and, and, and scarcity is real. 
And yet, um, the thing that we can control is how we choose to sort of, you know, interact with that set of emotions. What do we believe about those things that are that are real? And how do we still find gratitude within this? But the science in this, and Emily acknowledges that, is, is very real, which is to move beyond a state of uh, feeling resentful, feeling um, uh, like we are a victim, to what is an adverse set of circumstances. You know, the antidote to that is, is claiming a locus of control. And how do we how do we claim that locus? It's it's taking action. It's it's finding uh, expressions of gratitude in small and simple things that we have in our lives. It's being grateful for the things that are present for us. And it is also, I think, taking a long view. You know, and and we talk with leaders all the time about you know practices like journaling, uh, offering uh, uh, gratitude, being kind to others. These things have a profound uh, psychological impact on us. And sometimes it's just remembering that that's true. Most people will say, "Yeah, it's important to be uh, uh, have a have an expression of gratitude here and there. It's important to meditate. We say these things, we know these things, but we fall off of our own practices. And so, it's important to sort of maintain a practice, whatever it is for you, that helps you sort of be in a state of gratitude because um, the challenges are real. But but we can be thankful for things too. The final thing I would say is. You know, the antidote to feeling stuck um, and feeling, uh, frankly, self-absorbed, which is easy to get to when you don't see people as often as you used to, and when things are hard, the antidote to that is service. It's it's helping others. It's it's getting beyond ourselves and finding ways to be a service to others. That's hard to do uh, when we're you know told to you know maintain six feet of of distance between ourselves, but but it's important to find ways to be a service to others. And so I, I think something I'm reflecting on is like, how do I continue to show up and, and help others and, and with the constraints that we have? But that's part of part of the antidote as well. The service piece is really interesting because we immediately, I, I'm sitting, you're saying that I'm going, well, how can we, how can we be of service when we can't even be together? Which kind of forces us to reckon with, well, what do we mean by service? And what are the forms that service even begins to take and what does that look like? I think the other piece of that that I was thinking as you were talking, Todd, is how you take that from the personal to and you as a leader into making that feeling apparent in company culture. Where do you start with that? I'll even add to that and say that, you know, if we think about the political environment that we're in, we don't need to go too deep in this, but that, you know, common enemies are not shared loves. You know, that common sort of disagreements, shared disagreements are not shared agreements. And so we've got a little bit of, I think, confusion in this country as to what community really represents. And community is, is shared loves. It's, it's a sense of belonging. And I think, you know, people need to feel like they belong. And I think in this country, too many f- people feel like they don't belong. And so we're seeing a lot of things that manifest against that question of, you know, really fundamentally like loneliness, lack of belonging, uh, people feeling like uh, they don't have uh, sort of meaning in their own lives. And so I think the stakes to take it to the corporate side are really raised, which is, you know, if you, if you ask what allows for people to feel engaged as employees, it's really, I think, thinking about those fundamental needs that we have as humans. You know, do we feel like we belong? Do we feel seen? Do we feel recognized? Do we feel like we can be ourselves? And, um, and, and do we feel like we have shared loves, you know, and, and an organization with a shared set of loves? And some of these things can be as simple as like, look, we love serving our clients. We love building things together. We love showing up at work together. We love our culture. Um, those kinds of shared loves are, I think, uh, the things that define us as well as families and communities. But uh, but that's really important in this time where there's so much sort of tearing away at that or even false signals of belonging 
um, that we really need to invest in this sense of community. And I think companies have a unique opportunity where other institutions, maybe people aren't finding that, that sense of community, but I think companies can actually show up and provide that in many ways for their employees right now. Emily, you're nodding along. Uh, my heart also feels kind of warm and fuzzy just listening to all this talk. But I, you know, it also, look, my experience with service and the fundamental shared needs that we have is like, it brings, it just brings people closer together to express those things. Here's the hard part, though. You know, when we talk about service, we're, I'm not actually talking about like going to the greater Chicago Food Bank and like giving food. That That's important. That's an action. But it's also just sort of I, we're always just a big fan of like the micro movements and service to each other in the workplace feels vulnerable. So, for example, you know, if you were to say like, hey, Todd, like and I say this hopefully somewhat frequently, like, how can I help? It seems like you've got a lot on your plate. Do you want to talk something through? Maybe there's a way we can make it more efficient. Um, or do you need do you need help carrying the load of that? Because I know, you know, Jasper's, you know, been a lot this week. Right. Like it's stuff like that where I think the initial instinct is like, that's going to take time and energy. I don't have time for that. Here's the cool thing, though. If you do that, you actually get time and energy back. There's something you get from that that's actually bestowed, you know, back into your calendar just by virtue of giving it to Todd. So, like, you know, the chances increase that Todd's going to show up for whatever service looks like for you. And you create that interdependency that, quite frankly, I think leaders are really afraid of. We we're still we're still a puritanical sort of individualist culture where it's like, well, I can't. I couldn't possibly accept help. Are you kidding me? Like, no, I'm good. I don't need any help. It's like I just now in my career I'm getting to a place where it's like someone says I'm here to help. I'm like, thank God, because I've got a whole list of things and a whole team that I employ uh to help me. So, it's good to think I think of service as fuel. What about people who are maybe uh, like solopreneurs? I know there's like uh, quite a few people in that boat that are regular listeners of this and tune in to your insights. What about that? When it is just kind of you against the world, how do you bring that spirit into your work? I, I think the challenge for solopreneurs, and a lot of us feel like solopreneurs some days, um, even if we are operating with teams um, somewhere else. But we need community around us. And I think solopreneurs in particular, you know, one of the things I advise is that they they find a community of other solopreneurs, you know, who are people that are that we can stitch together um, and have a common just text chain kind of going in the background while we sort of do do our day to day work. But we need support and collaboration uh, and encouragement, um, as well as maybe critique and honest feedback, you know, and I think you know, joining a community is is a big part of how you do that. And, you know, Bunker Labs is a, is a community for the military connected entrepreneurs that might be solopreneurs. There are communities for, uh, you know, technology entrepreneurs, there's communities for black and brown entrepreneurs, there's communities for women, by the way, you can be all of those things uh, and join several communities. But uh, it is important as you think about the year ahead that you, I think, actually put pen to paper and intentionally construct what your support system, your human support system is going to look like in the future. I think if we told ourselves, if we could go back in time and say, okay, it's December of 2019 and here's what's coming. You know, if we knew the year that lay ahead, which none of us did, um, we might've thought differently. You know, we might've been more intentional, you know, here's who I'm going to go to for health advice. Cause I'm going to have questions about that. Here's who I'm going to go to for, um, support at setting up my home technology. You know, here's who I'm going to go to for support at thinking about, uh, how to homeschool kids if that need arises. Here's who I'm going to go to uh, for the days that are really hard. And here's who I'm going to go to for, you know, kind of creative inspiration and support. So 
cataloging these needs and then beginning to put names into sort of the buckets is, I think it's part of what good 2021 planning can look like. And, and by the way, asking yourself too, in this, you know, frame of service, you know, how can I show up for other people and sort of provide support for these things that I think they're going to need, but having that squad established for yourself, I think is really important. And um, we probably got there, uh, but it might've taken us longer than we needed to. And, and I think putting some intentionality around that question is, uh, would be time well spent. Sure. Yeah. If only we could go back to December and say, okay, here's what's coming. Here's what we need to plan for. I think we all would have fared much better. Well, Emily, and then there's the emotional side of that. What, what steps could people do to start planning for 2021 when we know if, if this year has taught us anything, it is that we need to pivot, drop plans, move shelf plans, like turn on a dime when we need to. And we really have no idea what's ahead. How can you plan and kind of brace yourself emotionally when we know there's still a lot of unknowns? I will speak just from experience because I, I hope that it's always helpful to just kind of say like what I've seen and what I'm doing myself. Um, you know, Todd's idea is one that I also ascribe to. And in fact, we, I think, have hired each other formally for a very specific role so I think it's two things. One is to sort of take stock on um, your progress so far this year. So it can feel like, you know, all the plans got, they just blew up. It's like, yeah, but you're here and you did some things right and you did some things wrong. Um, so I'm a big fan of like, you know, checking in on your progress, even, even as small as it is. And, you know, the question then becomes, well, what is progress? If I didn't mean, you know, the quarterly metrics, if I didn't mean the year end goal, like, did I do anything right? It's like, of course you did. You got to just stop looking at it as like this like blanket overall quarterly annual thing. <laughs> because again, again, I think the other thing 2020s taught us is like, and some days this is one day at a time. You know, some days your best days are just getting to all your meetings on time and like showing up and, and you know, kind of contributing what you can. And some days it's like, you know what, I need my camera off all day because the kids are driving me nuts. And like, you know, I, I can't figure out how to make payroll. Right. So just measuring progress, that's one thing. I would really take stock of, you know, the year, sure. Um, but today, like start with today and then keep going. Do it daily. Have a daily practice for that. And then I think, you know, in terms of envisioning for next year, if you were going to hire a team, like your dream team, um, and I'm not saying actually hire anybody, this is a metaphorical exercise, but you'll put it into practice. Like who's on your personal advisory board? And how often are you going to talk to them? So I have two people in my life that, and I'm adding a couple more, actually there's three, um, where I'm like, we talk every week at this time. No ifs, ands, or buts. Lots of times I'm like, you know what, I'm good. I don't need to talk to you. But I'm building the muscle of intimacy. So I go to those people for things like finance, ideas, innovation, versus thinking I can do it all by myself. So stop doing that. You can't. Um, so I would say envisioning what your personal advisory board is like for next year and reflecting on your progress from this year. Those are two things you can do. It's very important. Lots to unpack here. We've like opened <laughs> a lot of doors here with this, this <laughs> column in particular. What is coming up in the column this week, later this week? We're going to be talking uh, about, well, we've got actually two. So we've got, we're going to have a conversation about innovation in the Chicago land market. And uh, we're going to be speaking with Mark Tebby, who's a uh, investor and uh, the chairman of Chicago Next. He's listed a couple of Nasdaq companies, and he's talking about um, 
what is the forecast for Chicago? So, you know, as entrepreneurs, as business owners, of course, we're seeing the devastation across the small business community, but we want to talk about uh, what is possible for entrepreneurs in this, in this market. And, uh, and so he's got some great insights on that. And look, the punchline for him is he's an optimist and the fundamentals of Chicago are still strong. We have more Big Ten uh, graduates that come and work in Chicago than any other city uh, in the world, not to mention all those cities combined. So we have this enormous uh, uh, talent pool that we have in the city of Chicago. We have public transportation and infrastructure that is unparalleled. We're going to return to commercial travel. Um, it's just a question of when. Uh, we have uh, the, the uh, while we don't have more sort of unicorns in the city, the, the return on investment for venture capital dollars deployed and spent and invested in Chicago-based startups is uh, is uh, much higher than it is in other markets. And so you've got this enormous um, opportunity for investment. So the forecast for him on the entrepreneurship side for Chicago is that it's a positive one. And we just got to get through this moment. But, you know, the, the strength of the Fortune 500 companies that are based here the strength of the talent pool, the infrastructure, uh, the investment opportunities for investors um, remain strong. So there's work to be do done. We're, we're talking a lot about sort of the small businesses in the communities, but as an investor and as an entrepreneur, he continues to think that you know Chicago is a great market. So we're talking to him. We got some other things in the queue. We've written some other things too. Thank you both. <laughs> Always a pleasure to see you. Always a pleasure to talk things over. And also thank you to Deputy Digital Editor Sarah Zimmerman, who produces this live stream remotely. And of course, thank you to Wintrust, our sponsor. Coming up, Boeing quietly split the CEO and chairman roles after an investor revolt. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Thompson Coburn LLP is a national law firm whose Chicago attorneys have represented some of Chicago's largest public and privately held companies in a variety of corporate and litigation legal matters. Thompson Coburn attorneys deliver exceptional legal guidance to publicly and closely held businesses, financial institutions, and sole and family proprietorships across nearly every major industry and business sector. Thompson Coburn is all about total commitment to its clients, its people, and its community. Remember, that your business deserves legal advisors and litigators who are totally committed to your success. This is Crane's Daily Gist. Today's top stories are next. Even though COVID-19 metrics have started to stabilize and even improved a bit in some areas of the state, Governor J.B. Pritzker and state health officials say that it's too soon to ease limits on public activity because of a potential post-Thanksgiving surge in new infections. The governor said he reached this decision after speaking with Dr. Anthony Fauci. Pritzker said Fauci told him that large numbers of family gatherings here and around the country will, quote, very likely bring a post-Thanksgiving surge, and he believes this is no time to pull back on mitigations. Pritzker said the number of people hospitalized with COVID in the state has dropped two or 300, and that test positivity rates have dropped from their peak in several of the state's 12 regions. But overall, he said it's flattening rather than a drop. And with vaccines expected to be available, Available to first responders and some others in high-risk groups by mid-month, there is some good news on the way, said Dr. Ngoze Zike, director of the Illinois Department of Public Health. However, until the vaccines arrive and are widely available, she said the state must stay vigilant. Both officials urged people who attended Thanksgiving events involving people outside of their immediate household to be tested later this week and to self-quarantine in the meantime. Pritzker said that he does not now expect to issue a statewide stay-at-home order, but that the option 
question is not off the table. Pritzker added that he hopes the current rules work and the state will be a, quote, happier place by late December. And speaking of Governor Pritzker, he's also announced $9 million in grants to help developers build out facilities that will house life science companies in their earliest stages of development. The state's Department of Commerce and Economic Opportunity said it's offering the $9 million in grants for development and renovation of wet lab space, which is the kind of lab where drugs and chemicals and other types of biological matter can be analyzed and tested using, as the name suggests, liquids. In any case, the funding, which comes from the $45 billion capital bill that the state passed last year also requires that developers match any grant money they receive for projects that, quote, expand access to 21st century lab space to incubators, corporations, university researchers, and startups. That, according to a DCEO statement. And the whole thing is trying to help solve a long-standing lab space supply problem, particularly in Chicago, that industry experts say has stunted the area's growth as a destination for bioscience companies. While the breakthrough developments that maybe start such ventures often happen at local institutions like Northwestern and University of Chicago, companies that come out of that research have generally moved into more developed life science markets with more high-quality lab space, like Boston and San Francisco and North Carolina's research triangle. And local developers haven't been as willing to build more space for that in Chicago because it's pretty expensive. And given the specifications needed for such a lab, it can be very tough to repurpose when tenants move on. Pritzker, who said the life sciences and healthcare sector is one of the six industries the state's focusing on for economic growth over the next several years, is hoping the grant money will help more developers make the financial piece of this work for the sector. A DCEO spokesperson said the state expects to award the money to as many as four different applicants. The money has to be used for capital improvements on a multi-tenant facility as opposed to owner-occupied space for individual companies, and that's to make sure it's bolstering incubators, startups, and other early-stage type of ventures. DCEO also said in the statement that applicants must, quote, demonstrate that the facility will fill a gap needed in the region and that it'll prioritize projects that partner with incubators, universities, and colleges, medical facilities, or businesses that require such labs. Applications for the funding are due by January 27th. Count Guggenheim Partners LLC is among institutional investors keeping an eye on cryptocurrencies. Guggenheim, which is headquartered in both Chicago and New York, is reserving the right for its $5.3 billion macro opportunities fund to invest in the grayscale Bitcoin trust, shares of which are solely invested in Bitcoin. The largest cryptocurrency has had a pretty strong run in 2020, nearing its December 2017 record highs above 19,000 before retreating. Guggenheim's filing, which describes cryptocurrencies as digital assets designed to act as a medium of exchange, also lists a wide variety of risks including prices that can be volatile, regulatory changes, a crisis of confidence in the Bitcoin network, a change in user preference to other cryptocurrencies, and trading on what they described as largely unregulated exchanges that may be more exposed to fraud and failure than more regulated and established ones. Boeing's board quietly separated the CEO and chairman roles earlier this year after a majority of shareholders opposed management and supported the move in a non-binding vote at the company's annual meeting. Under the new policy, which is detailed on Boeing's website but hasn't been very widely publicized, the board will elect a chairman from among the independent directors each year following the shareholder meeting. If that chairman leaves the board or joins the company's executive team, a new leader will be picked from the remaining independent directors. The board had resisted calls to request Require an independent chairman even after establishing outsider Larry Kellner in that role in a management shakeup late last year. 
Like Boeing's top executives, the board was criticized for the company's botched response to two fatal crashes of the 737 MAX aircraft, which killed 346 people and set the plane maker into crisis mode. The change in the board's leadership structure was described in a statement of corporate governance principles in June, but it came to light only this month when shareholder activist John Chavedin, who wrote the original proposal to require an independent chairman, submitted a follow-up measure to Boeing. His proposal gained 52% of shareholder votes at Boeing's April meeting, despite being opposed by management. Chavedin said by email that he hasn't decided whether he will withdraw his proposal for 2021. And that's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Our continuous news feed lives at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to our guests today, Todd Connor and Emily Drake. Be sure to subscribe to these conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. And find hashtag Crane's Daily Gist on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, and let's continue talking there about these and other business stories. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time time.